other world leaders in different states have talked about their concern about genocide. They, in my view, once they reach that view, have a positive duty to do to do to do certain acts to prevent it. One of which would be to, to seek interim measures or temporary measures from the International Court of Justice. So that's the court that deals with interstate disputes, mm. all kinds, border disputes, whatever you like. And this, they, the, the International Court of Justice has jurisdiction on genocide and has actually taken measures at the request of third party states. A clear recent example is the Gambia, which took Myanmar to um, the International Court of Justice and obtained temporary measures to seek the end of certain acts against the Rohingya. Um, so there's a very recent example of a third party state not involved in the conflict to do with the Rohingya going to the International Court of Justice and seeking such a, if you like, an injunction or an interim order to try and bring that to an end. And in my view, that is what should be happening. That would be the obvious thing for third party states to do to try and stop what's going on. Good evening and welcome to Palestine Deep Dive, where today we're discussing Israel, Palestine and international law. A deep dive uh, now that we're eight weeks in to this most appalling uh, war with so much suffering. Uh, and we're joined today by Daniel Macover. And Daniel is one of the UK's leading solicitors specialising in police and human rights law, both nationally and internationally. He's the head of civil litigation and a partner of Hickman and Rose Solicitors in London and was co-founders of Lawyers for Palestinian Human Rights, which was founded uh, back in 1988. And Daniel's pioneering human rights work has seen him bring cases to the Court of Appeal, the Supreme Court, and the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, and most considerably, of course, he's also previously managed to obtain arrest warrants in the UK for Israeli political and military figures who have been accused of war crimes against Palestinians under occupation. Now, that would be one of the issues that we will want to talk to Daniel about uh, today. I'm very grateful, Daniel, uh, for you joining us. Uh, it's, it's, it's rare really to be able to stand back from the fray, if you like, uh, and to try to, as dispassionately as possible and as in a most fair-minded way as is possible, to try and get to the bottom of who is responsible, what are the rules, who needs to do what, and what happens to those who break the rules, who break the law. And of course, uh, it's been uh, it's affected civilians in a huge way, an enormous civilian life in Gaza, over 15,000 people, and of course, uh, suffering and loss of life, well over 1,000 people killed uh, uh, in southern Israel in that Hamas attack. So from the very beginning with the Hamas October 7th attack, uh, there have been demands for legal intervention, for restraint, particularly with regard to the Israeli response. Uh, and there have been arguments as to what may or may not constitute self-defence. And there's been a growing groundswell of claims and counterclaims as to whether Israel is in breach of the Geneva Convention and international human rights law. And there have been direct accusations that Israel is engaging in collective punishment, in ethnic cleansing and planning for genocide and acts of genocide. Taking a sort of broader perspective, I mean, can, can you just let us know what your take is on the observance of international human rights law, the Geneva Conventions. Uh, just give us a brief overview of where uh, where all sides stand in this. Yes, of course. Thank you, Mark. The, the evidence shows, in my view, given the huge number of civilian casualties and the evidence of direct attacks on civilians on the 7th of October by Hamas suspects, that we have a very, very significant number of war crimes, in my view, crimes against humanity and acts of genocide. And the reason I say that is because the, 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 the very, very significant loss of civilian life in Gaza, which is huge. Now, we don't have the exact breakdown between the civilians and the military losses, but even on the numbers that I've heard recently, Israel state, the proportionality, the the the, dis, uh, uh, the numbers involved in terms of civilian loss of life is disproportionately huge compared to the number of 
um, military uh, objects, the individuals that even Israel says, but those are contested. But also one has to look at the significant damage of civilian objects. I mean, the statistics on the, the recently we have statistics comparing the civilian infrastructure, buildings, homes, universities, mosques, compared to Dresden. What we've got is now, as we stand eight weeks in, the proportionate loss of all of those civilian objects is bigger than in Dresden. A higher percentage of buildings in Gaza have been lost. That in immediately shows, to my mind, that there are a very, very large number of war crimes. And I'm going to just mention a few because people sometimes don't appreciate the extent of war crimes. So the ones that I believe apply here include intentionally launching an attack in the knowledge that such attack will cause incidental loss or life or injury to civilians or damage to civilian objects or widespread long-term and severe damage to the natural environment, which would be clearly excessive in relation to the concrete and direct overall military advantage anticipated. It's a long one, but it's clear. Some of these are now shorter and, and equally clear, in my view, that there are prima facie war crimes. Attacking or bombarding by whatever means, towns or villages, dwellings or buildings which are undefended and which are not military objectives. The transfer directly or indirectly by the occupying power of parts of its own civilian population into the territory it occupies or the deportation or transfer or, of parts or all of the population of an occupied territory within or outside the territory intentionally directing attacks against buildings, material, medical units, and transport and personnel using the distinctive emblems of the Geneva Conventions in conformity with international law, intentionally starving, using starvation of civilians as a method of welfare or depriving them, by depriving them, sorry, of objects indispensable to their survival, including willfully impeding relief supplies as provided for under the Geneva Conventions. Now, there's massive evidence of that. But what we have, in fact, is, is evidence of further, and, and these are some of the strongest examples I'm going to give you, because we have recent terrible examples of this, of committing outrages upon the personal dignity, in particular, humiliating and degrading treatment. And we have pictures of that now in Gaza from the recent days and saying that there will be no quarter. We have statements from the beginning. That is a specific war crime, which in my view was, there's strong evidence of that by the defense minister in Israel right at the beginning. You cannot say there will be no quarter because that is a clear indication that you intend to systematically fail to distinguish between civilian and military objects. Now, where you commit some of these acts on a widespread or systematic basis, and you target a civilian population in committing some of those acts, extensive um, acts, including, by the way, certain acts within that, that are criminal, criminalized by the, um, the Rome Statute, such as persecution, extermination, apartheid, those are crimes against humanity. And we have a list of actions by the Israeli military forces, which do amount, because of their either widespread or systematic nature, to crimes against humanity. Mm -hmm. Now, finally, in the case of genocide, in the case of genocide, the list of um, acts that would qualify for genocide are a shorter list, but they include the kind of um, extensive deaths of a particular population. They include other acts, and we can list them in detail if ne needed, but the real importance of genocide is the need to show specific intent to destroy part or all of an ethnic, religious, national or national group. So there, the real issue is that the list of index offences, if you like, to which genocide as a crime attaches is not as long as the list of offences that amount to war crimes or crimes against humanity, but the particular issue is the need to have specific intent to destroy part or all of that community. Thank you. We often hear the terms proportionality. We can start with that. 
um, proportionality and war crimes. They're banded around in the media. But Daniel, could you explain briefly what these terms actually mean in relation to international law? Forgive me for a slightly long answer. So in terms of the crimes that we're looking at or the potential crimes we're looking at, there are a range of them, but they're quite complicated in their in, the, in terms of what jurisdiction they give rise to. So grave breaches of the fourth Geneva Convention relate to um, crimes which could be committed by an occupier against an occupied people. Those set of war crimes slash grave breaches, for example, in the English jurisdiction are covered by the grave, uh, the Geneva Conventions at 1957. And I'm gonna jump forward and just explain one minor point. A Hamas suspect of any criminality cannot be prosecuted under the Geneva Conventions at 1957. So a visiting Hamas suspect is not subject to those offences because those offences are to protect protected persons under occupation. And whatever the allegations against Hamas would be, they relate to individual acts of criminality against Israeli um, individuals that committed on the 7th. So those are the allegations that relate to them. That wouldn't be prosecuted in our jurisdiction as war crimes under the Geneva Conventions Act. Right. However, however, there are a series of allegations which could be subject to the International Criminal Court's jurisdiction, which we'll come on to later. And those are a separate list of war crimes. Now, they are a separate list because under the Rome Statute, which set up the ICC, you get a list of different war crimes. The first chunk of Article 8 war crimes in the Rome Statute are the Geneva Convention provisions, and they can only be brought in relation to those committed against protected persons. But then the Rome Statute goes on to list a number of others where that's not a prerequisite. So war crimes, a complicated area, but where you're talking about crimes covered under the Geneva Conventions and any in, in, it, that have been brought into the Rome Statute, Hamas suspects are just not subject to that jurisdiction, but they are to other war crimes listed within the Rome Statute. What about, um, sorry to interrupt you there, yeah, Daniel, but right. what about those who gave the instructions uh, to yes. those Hamas operatives? Correct. So there is command responsibility within the Rome Statute built into it for civilian and military leaders. There's provisions within the International Criminal Court uh, the Act in the UK and the, the Rome Statute, which uh, give jurisdiction over commanders, whether civilian or military, um, so that they are subject to that. But I repeat, not in the UK for a visitor um, under the Geneva Conventions Act. That's quite important because UK jurisdiction over these crimes only relates to British citizens and those who are resident in the United Kingdom. So the, the national jurisdiction that we acquire over suspects will very rarely apply to any Hamas suspects. That's different, of course, from the, the, the jurisdiction yeah. that the International Criminal Court has. Mm. Um, and that would have jurisdiction if the chief prosecutor took a request to a chamber of the court at The, the Hague they could issue arrest warrants against Hamas suspects, against Israeli suspects. What they can't do in relation to Hamas suspects is choose any of the war crimes in the list, in the first list of war crimes, because they only relate to protected persons. But there are a whole slew of other ones, including taking of hostages, that are within the Rome Statute. So that's war crimes. It's important to emphasize two others for now. Crimes against humanity. Mm -hmm. um, now that those were developed over time from concepts around the, the, um, the Nuremberg Tribunal, but much more in the recent history of international criminal law through the statutes that were set up for the ad hoc tribunals to, relating to Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia. And they get um, into the Rome Statute and they're incredibly important because they relate to widespread or systematic attacks against the civilian population. And then there's a list of those that would qualify, of acts which would qualify against crimes against humanity, where they're done as widespread or systematic. So they could be war crimes, which are done at a systematic level or a widespread level or part of a policy. 
because of course you can have war crimes individual war crimes without them being crimes against humanity but at a large scale if you like basis and we're directed against a civilian population which is part of that mm -hmm. crimes against humanity terminology you can be into crimes against humanity and then next if you like um, and often cited and discussed in recent weeks for good reasons i believe is the crime of genocide and that's where the some of the prerequisite sort of criminality are a similar list but it's shorter under the genocide definition so these are the criminal acts murder depriving someone of the means of survival etc but it's quite a short list because it's conceptually linked to an, a specific intent to destroy part or all of an ethnic or racial or national group that's, so uh, there specific intent you have to mm -hmm. have that specific intent which is why there are fewer cases because the evidence for specific intent often isn't there now the no. very I, I mean, unusual aspect here is that lots of public pronouncement has been taken as actually giving evidence of the intent yes you see dead i mean we were, i was going to ask you about this uh, later on but i mean we we have seen um reports in the israeli press we have seen leaked minutes from uh, cabinet meetings we have heard statements from some members of the israeli cabinet um which by any stretch of the imagination could be surely interpreted as being genocidal in intent but do, is there a difference between being genocidal in intent and actually carrying out the act of genocide well i think it's part of the evidence of whether or not it is an important part of the evidence to show what are people saying and what exactly are they doing and do the two match or does one provide evidence of another so sometimes you can have the intent but not the acts or acts which you believe provide evidence of a genocide and occasionally you can have the acts with a very with a grave difficulty of proving the intent here we've got evidence of both in my view so we have actually quite an unusually strong and this is not me just saying it I think something like 800 genocide scholars and a, a very important opinion which um, is, is publicly available and is in a lot of detail which we haven't got time for now mm. by one of the leading um, lawyers in the field, William Professor William Shabas, has provided a, a written opinion to the court proceedings that have been taken against Biden by the Center for Constitutional Rights in California. So there's an ongoing case saying that the US is in breach of its duty, duties that, that link to the Genocide Convention, duty to the, that it's aiding and abetting, that it's failed to prevent. The, the thing about genocide, which is unique, to all of these international crimes is it gives rise to a whole slew of quite unusual public uh, state duties the positive duty to prevent doesn't arise in relation to crimes against humanity or war crimes that's why this issue has such heat in the public debate and in the legal debate and in the public international law debate because absent a genocide the duties there are certain duties but they're not so sort of pungent and clear as the duty to prevent genocide and that is important when we come to the international court of justice and other kind of ways remedies available that arise from the genocide convention so i hope that explains the significance of this whole debate around um an allegation of genocide it's 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 fascinating and it it, it leads me on really to to ask, I suppose, about the gen general Israeli military policy, because, you know, because you mentioned counterinsurgency campaigns. And I'm thinking previously in terms of Britain in places like Aden, uh, in Cyprus, in Kenya. Um, now, uh, Britain is still uh, having to answer questions uh, to this day and also having to apologize. Uh, that's a different matter for being convicted, I suppose. But if you look at the counterinsurgency campaigns just for the sake of argument aiden um where there, there were civilians killed but it was a very different kind of counterinsurgency to what we 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 see someone like paul rogers the peace academic academic from bradford school of peace studies i think that's where he is but he uh, has written a piece where he 
he says that the Israeli military policy, some argue, lends itself to quite deliberately carrying out war crimes. And he says that this the central tenet is a policy of deterrence, and this is embodied in the so-called Dahir doctrine, uh, which dictates the use of overwhelming and disproportionate force. Um, and uh, it, uh, apparently it received its name from the same neighborhood of Beirut, which Israel almost totally destroyed during its assault on Lebanon. Um, yes. So since this doctrine underpins the Israeli military response in Gaza, and since, I suppose, unlike uh, in uh, Beirut, we can actually see some of what is going on um, because of people's ability to use media in a way that they couldn't then. I mean, do you believe those carrying this military policy out believe that ultimately they could be held responsible or not? Do they think they're kind of nobody's they could do it and... I can't, I, I can't get into their minds on that level. Um, mm. I obviously think they believe because they've been carrying out these policies for a very long time and they've been called out for a very long time. I mean, at some point, I would like to quote to you and ask you whether you could guess when and who said something. But I, I won't tease you anymore. <laughs> Let me tell you that back in 2002, um, when... Um, the Israeli army dropped a one-ton bomb. They were still boots on the ground occupation of Gaza, uh, but they did something very similar to what they did during this period of conflict when they dropped six one-ton bombs on Jabalia refugee camp in pursuit of a single Hamas commander. Back in um, 2002, when this happened, there was uproar by President Bush, by our um, UK Labour government, including Jack Straw, who made a very strong statement to say this was in utter violation. You cannot, and this, you would think you touched on it earlier, there are principles of distinction, proportionality, mm. humanity, etc. There are clear principles in, in use of military force, whether it, in, in whatever conflict you care to mention. And these are principles of international humanitarian law, which Israel has decided it has got somehow permission to breach and, and it's acted with impunity. So going back to your original question, there, there has been a long period when the acts of is successive Israeli governments and military operations have been called out by the British government, by the UN in the Goldstone Commission. This is Operation mm -hmm. uh, Cast Lead 2008-2009 winter of where we had a report from Goldstone, Protective Edge. Operation after operation, Israel has used overwhelming force already before we got to 8th of October, 7th, 8th October onwards. Serial examples. So the answer to, I think, your question is Israel has been emboldened by all of its previous apparent breaches of international humanitarian law and many, many alleged war crimes to carry on its conduct and Frankly, what happened on the 7th of October has been treated by Israel as a form of blank check. The previous fact that it, it has not been called to book for what mm. happened in, mm. in the period up to then and the, the horrors that Israel experienced on the 7th have been treated by the Israeli military as a combined form of blank check to just do what the hell they like, in my view. Yes. Frankly, well, Daniel, I mean, on, we heard, I think, I think Defence Minister Gallant at the time and the yep. and Prime Minister Netanyahu were, were quite clear about what they intended we in many respects. It was quite public. I'm telling the residents of, of Gaza, leave now because we will act everywhere with all the force. At this time, IDF forces are cleansing the last four, last communities to cleanse them from Hamas terrorists. They're moving house from house to house, from street to street, and bringing these places back to our control. I... Um, and of course, and it's an outrage to interrupt you. It's an outrage because they were so public, and because of the back history that I've just touched on. It's absolutely extraordinary that states didn't say, hold on a minute, of course you have been subject to a terrorist attack. It's an insurgency from the people mm. you've occupied. And obviously we seek a long-term solution and you to, to this terrible conflict. And we want to address all of that politically. 
militarily, you cannot mount a full-scale attack of the kind that you have said belligerently in the early statements you've just touched on. So mm -hmm. nothing was a surprise after the 8th of October. And yet states didn't hold Israel back from committing mass apparent war crimes and crimes against humanity, and in my view, genocide. It actually initially just said, go ahead. So the request for the blank check was met by international states, in my view. Yes. I mean, there, of course, President Biden did say, we urge you not to make the similar mistakes that we made in Iraq. But absolutely. I mean, I'm thinking primarily of some of the political leaders in the West. It was very much taken as being a green light. And of course, we then had some politicians, including our own leader of the Labour Party here, Keir Starmer, when he's passed on that LBC programme about um, the Israeli declared intent, yeah. again, from Minister of De uh, Defence Gallant to halt water, food and energy supplies, uh, that was deemed access uh, uh, acceptable. So we, we had and, and, and this and kind a of clear violation, a clear, a clear war crime, in my view, not ambiguous at all. It's absolutely clear, and by the way, made clear during um, any all attempts by Russia during its assault on Ukraine to cut off electricity, to make it difficult for civilians to go about their lives, to put their lives at risk by localised um, attempts to blockade and starve, were met with a clear injunction on Russia not to do it. And that injunction should have been issued the same day it was uttered by yes. those those yes. Um, leaders you've just mentioned. Yes. So these are clear double standards, and the law isn't even ambiguous. So the fact that Keir Starmer, whoever is asked that question, especially a lawyer who has in the past you know done work on on international criminal law, should know better. Yes. Now, um, I don't know if my colleague Omar is able to show us this, but we did have a clip from an interview uh, earlier today with um, a Home Office Minister, Chris Felp. Um, and he was being, essentially was being questioned about these claims that appeared that uh, the British military were actually assisting the Israelis on the ground in Gaza. There's been a very fulsome and clear denial by the Ministry of Defence that that is happening. But then the question, he went off on a slight tangent, and he was asked whether, because the, the Britain has said that it's, it's providing uh, surveillance to help uh, locate uh, possible hostages being held by Hamas, and he was asked whether if Britain, uh, in the course of doing this surveillance, was to, to, to film uh, acts of war crimes, would it hand this material over to the ICC? And he seemed to be a little bit unclear, if, to be honest with you. And I suppose this the question is, um, you know, because there's a lot of confusion. Can you explain to us what jurisdiction uh, the International Criminal Court actually has in the state of Palestine, which does recognise it, and Israel, yes. which does not? Uh, because yes. we do know, we do know, just before you answer the question, Daniel, we know that um, uh, Kamir Khan Casey, the prosecutor, has visited Israel at the invitation of the government. He's also visited Ramallah in the occupied territories. Um, so does that mean that he, he is actually able to investigate claims of war crimes? And actually, sorry to, we've just got this little clip and then I'll come to you for the answer, if I may. Of course. Reports this morning uh, that the UK will not be sharing information gained during uh, reconnaissance flights. Yes. Why? Uh, well, it'll it'll share information in relation to rescuing and identifying hostages, but nothing else. Even if we, even if there is evidence that the International Criminal Court should see. Uh, well, I think the International Criminal Court doesn't have jurisdiction because Israel is not a signatory to the relevant treaty. I, um, I think there were concerns that we would be sort of directly assisting Israeli military operations, and that is not the case. But if, if, the, if there is evidence of a war crime being committed, we will not share that information. I don't think I, I, I said that. I think the concern that we were trying to address in our comments and the Defence Secretary's comments yesterday is that these flights are not assisting Israeli military operations. That's the point the Defence Secretary was making. OK, we, I must leave it there. But it... Yeah, there we have it. What do you make of that then, Daniel? Yeah, that, that, that is utter confusion. So let's just unpack a little bit of it. So first of all, the International Criminal Court does have jurisdiction. There was a long battle over it and an attempt to stop 
what Palestine had asked for. So it's, it ratified the Rome Statute and it referred itself its own territory for investigation. What that means eventually has meant, and it took an exceedingly long time to get through all the in, in initial processes. Uh, but certainly by the time that Kareem Khan started his tenure in 2021, the issue about jurisdiction had passed. The International Criminal Court has full jurisdiction over the territories that are currently the occupied Palestinian territories and over nationals of that territory that commit crimes wherever they occur. So that's how Hamas uh, operatives, militants or anyone else who committed um, acts that could come within the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, and I explained this nuance, they can't be done prosecuted for Geneva Conventions breaches, but there are a list of war crimes within the Rome Statute for which they are suspects and could be prosecuted, there is jurisdiction. Now, I don't think that actually, strictly speaking, Karim Khan was there at the invitation of the Israeli government because right. they don't recognize this jurisdiction still. I think people who had gone to The Hague, Israeli citizens, have actually used the fact that Palestine has referred itself and asked the court to look at the cases that happened on the 7th of October and be clear. The only way they get that is not because the Israeli government seeks it or wants it or agrees to it. It's because of the Palestinian referral, first of all, ratifying and accept their ratification was accepted, which was a big battle in itself, because not all states recognize for all purposes the existence of the state of Palestine. But for the treaty purposes of joining the Rome Statute, that was accepted and it's happened. Then it had to refer itself. And that's given the court jurisdictions over anything that happens on the territory and any nationals that come outside the territory and are alleged to have committed crimes that come within the Rome Statute. So that's clear. The, the cooperation point is very interesting and a, a very good and unusually well uh, put question by British journalists because I've not seen them ask good questions very often of ministers or, or of other spokespeople. But I think the, the correct answer is actually once there is a fully fledged criminal process, there is a mutual cooperation provisions between every state in, that's party to the Rome Statute, including the UK and the ICC. And I think they could call in that evidence. We're not there yet. I think they've probably got a general duty to assist the, the International Criminal Court in its investigation. But it becomes much more live once, for example, there's an arrest warrant which there are provisions for, I think, in uh, Article 58 of the statute, um, and possibly now, but certainly at a later stage, that evidence that the, the, the journalist was asking for, if it were relevant to assist the investigation and the prosecution, I think we'd have to pro provide it to the court under the MLA, they're called, often called mutual legal assistance provisions that apply. Very interesting. Very interesting, Daniel. And I mean, more generally, I suppose, because a lot of people, I mean, this is a great education for people as to the jurisdiction and and how the powers um, have, have have changed or been extended and, and how they apply. But a, a lot of people have been looking at this because we do talk briefly about Ukraine and the political response to the illegal Russian uh, invasion and occupation but also the quite uh, quick response of the International Criminal Court. Um, it, it didn't take all that long for, and quite rightly, for prosecutors to go and investigate claims that Russians, uh, Russian troops had killed civilians, um, and nor did it take all that long for an arrest warrant to be put out for President Putin. But a lot of people out there who are watching this are saying, um, well, you know, what, what seems to be the holdup? Um, and not Agreed. just... Not just over the you know the seventh of October and uh, immediately afterwards, but previous ICC investigations. What is the problem here? The problem is political. It can't be explained by law. So, as I said, by 2020, when when Kareem Khan was appointed as the chief prosecutor, there was an investigation ongoing, and it's shameful, frankly, that we haven't already had arrest warrants for some of the key cases which fall under the jurisdiction which go back to 2014 of which there are very strong evidence i've given you examples of the kind of 
what Israel called its targeted assassinations policy, where on many occasions it, it has already said, yes, we went after this commander, and then there is evidence about the breach of the rules on distinction and proportionality in relation to that incident. There are many examples within the jurisdiction of the court where there could have been arrest warrants for the whole chain of command. And interestingly, in the current climate, where I've seen a, a real consensus around settlements in the West Bank, which involve a series of war crimes and um, therefore fall under the jurisdiction where the chain of command, because we don't have a, there's no factual dispute again. Some of the incidents we've been talking about and the whole events around Gaza, there are factual disputes here and there about the use of force and about whether some, something's a military target or not a military target, etc. But with the settlements, it's pure law. The facts are agreed. These settlements have taken away this piece of land, have displaced this Palestinian population, involve a transfer in to the occupied territory of non-protected persons, that's Israeli settlers. So all of the elements of a crime are there. So why there haven't been arrest warrants from 2021 onwards? Because as I say, there was a holdup, a long holdup before there were fully fledged investigations. But he had something approximating to two years before these terrible events started in October, where he should have, could have got on with it. And maybe, and we will never know, had he acted properly and had arrest warrants, the scale of the current events may have been different because the whole point of any criminal process, whether it's national or international, is one of deterrence. So he failed in one of his main duties, which is to investigate and then arrest or seek arrests and act, therefore act as a potential deterrence on future criminality. And that's what's happened in the past. So now, one of the key examples, if I can move on back onto your Russian question, one of the, the arrest warrants that have been granted relate to transfer, especially of children from the Ukraine into Russian territory. But transfer within, um, mass transfer depriving civilians of where they live on a mass basis is a very significant international crime. Why? Because, of course, we know from the whole terrible events of the second of various parts of the second world war what it can lead to ethnic cleansing allegations mm -hmm. of genocide crimes against humanity in the modern or the modern parlance um so we know how important it is to repress those type of crimes or allegations of those type of crimes the evidence is plain israel has moved and then completely destroyed a large percentage of a whole section of northern gaza it's 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 impossible for those people to ever go back and live in their houses they've been massively destroyed these involve a whole series of by the way of of significant um allegations of war crimes in and of themselves but the transfer is something that's directly comparable if you like to the arrest warrants against putin and and, and a second suspect who's been involved in that policy so again we have a direct double standard because those that, Daniel, beyond the direct double standard, we have a situation whereby we are led to believe that the Secretary of State Blinken, the US administration, put pressure upon the Israelis to conduct the next part of that their operation, uh, not to target civilians, not to, to affect civilians in the same way it had happened in northern Gaza. And hence the, the cantonment plan, um, you know, moving people around from district to district. Um, and we have that self-declaration of the uh, Israelis and with the knowledge of the United States that ultimately um, the vast majority of the civilian population of Gaza are going to be parked in a 14-kilometer-by-one-kilometer strip of desert in the southwest of Gaza. So that would seem to be an, an, an absolute declaration of intent. To yes, I I agree. And it's not just that, it's the aerial bombardment or the massive destruction. Where where are they going to live in the future? They've been transferred. Are, are they ever, are those people, if they survive the next period of war, the ones that do survive it? Um, and I'm not yet convinced, by the way, that we won't see transfer 
from outside into and out into other territories, whether Israel or Egypt, of that civilian population. And we've yet to see what, what, what the terrible things that may transpire as people get desperate, as they starve, because we know that one of the tactics has been to continue to, to resume the starvation policy, not that they ever really dropped it by the very, very sparse um, during the truce period amount of, of aid that managed to get in. So um, what worries me is the whole of the policy, the whole of the campaign, the, 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 the amount of destruction of civilian objects like the parliament, the justice, uh, the the courts that would that there's evidence that they bombed the courts. These are these are just civilian objects being destroyed en masse, which is a a very serious war crime because it, again, in the context of the Second World War and of destruction of whole um, communities, it you know these are really um, things that have to be suppressed and where war crimes. Um, suppression is so important again as an act of deterrence so it's very concerning to see these um, events carry on and carry on without a significant reaction from the international criminal court yes you see i mean these things are happening on such a scale and in such a blatant manner um and perhaps this is a slightly unfair question for you because you know, how would you know necessarily? But but there must surely be something. There's something. It's almost like um, you know the Al Capone moment. There is one of these crimes that actually is able to cut through because somebody. Well, I, there are many. You know what could there it? There are be? many. Well, I, I've given you one. The one you that you see the examples that are strongest are where there's no, as it were, factual dispute, and it's a, a legal question. And I've given you one key example. The six one-ton bombs dropped on Jabalia refugee camp where the Israelis said, yes, we were after this commander and an organization called Air Wars, which is one of these NGOs that's looking, not Palestine-Israel related. It's a, it's a standing NGO that's just looking at the use of air power and military conflicts. Their data, they've done various case studies, which are doing very, very slowly and meticulously. And they, they, they had noted this as being an important case to look at in terms of war crimes or crimes against humanity. So that is, if you like, one of several Al Capone opportunities mm. because the Israelis say, yes, we were targeting this person and we believe we can justify as a matter of law because we will say we pass the rules on distinction, proportionality, etc. In my view, it, the, the defense, which would have to be looked at in a court of law before anyone could be convicted of anything, obviously. But I believe the evidence there is very strong because we have well over 100 civilians and the US and Britain back in 2002, when 14 civilians were killed, when uh, a, a Hamas militant called Shahadeh was killed in July 2002, called that out and said, this is unlawful. Those were the words they used. I said I, I was going to quote it, but I, I can find you the Jack Straw quote. Mm. And the Bush administration said the same, just quickly. <clears throat> yeah. Um, before traveling to the UN, so what happened was there was a UN meeting he was going to not long after this July bombing. Jack Straw told the House of Commons that he would ensure that Sir Patrick Cormack's views so one of the people that intervened in the parliamentary debate, which I think the whole House shares about the unjustified and disproportionate nature of the attack and its consequences are conveyed to the ambassador and through him to the Israeli government. This yes. was the Shahade bombing of July 2002. Yes. And, 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 and then, Sir Patrick Cormat, of course, was a Conservative MP. Yeah. You know, um, where, where are then, they now? And then another there. attack on the spiritual leader of Hamas at the, around the same time, Sheikh Yassin, mm -hmm. where, where a similar large number of civilians were killed. This is what the U UK government said at the time. This was unlawful, unjustified and self-defeating. And they damaged the case that Israel makes in the world. The fact that the killings led to the deaths of not only those whom Israel holds responsible for terrorism, but entirely innocent bystanders, including children, simply emphasizes the unlawful nature of that approach and its counterproductive effect. Hansard, 
30th of March 2004, column 1043. So that's mm. Jack Straw earlier in the year after they killed Sheikh Yassin and a load of civilians. But where, where is a single politician yeah. during this conflict when yes. much worse has happened? So this is not difficult. The fact that this has happened after the 7th of October doesn't change the legal framework around the, the lawfulness of that strike on Jabalia. So, and then, Mark, there are many more examples. I'm just giving you one which I believe is is particularly strong. Yes, and uh, you see, I suppose, Daniel, that you know, for, if from the point of view of some poor person sitting in Gaza right now, this is all very academic because it's all nothing Absolutely. seems to have happened. It shouldn't be. It's all going to take too long. Um, Absolutely, it shouldn't uh, be. We can move on to something which may happen because I, the ICC has become so politicised that I believe if we get arrest warrants from um, Kareem Khan and the court process, because he has to go through a process, he can't just push it out, pull it out of his back pocket, but he should be getting on with it and getting a chamber at the court to, to give him an arrest warrant. It may well be against the Hamas suspects mm -hmm. and against settlers in the West Bank. Yes. And instead of addressing the much more massive, um, wide-scale attacks that have been going on yes. the Israeli military, uh, that would open things up, wouldn't it? Well, any any attempt to bring to to into effect international criminal law, as I said earlier, would act hopefully as a deterrence. But you know, I'm not I'm not holding my breath. I'm no. saying this is the kind of thing that might happen. But there are other avenues that states should be taking. Oh, um, and these, this includes going to the International Court of Justice to do with the duty, as I mentioned earlier, to prevent genocide. But we can yeah. come on to that. Yeah, I mean, and of course, I think some member states uh, led by South Africa have, have, have referred to, have said they're going to refer Israel to the ICC. So these are member states. So in terms that. of the ICC, I think you wanted, so there was a letter sent, um, I've got it here because it's published by the South African government on behalf of it and four other states, Bangladesh, Bolivia, the Comoros, and the Republic of Djibouti. So five states on the 17th of November uh, wrote specifically referring, seeking a, a, a criminal investigation into the events, and that included allegations of genocide. So in my view, there became a duty on every state that says they've got a concern and they wish to prevent genocide. Now, the prevent genocide duty is much lower than proving genocide. If you have a concern, a legitimate concern that there may be a genocide, the duty is triggered quite low. And they've accepted that when they made the referral. So that gives rise to other international duties. And other states have said similar. Jordan, Foreign Minister of Jordan has said it. Other world leaders in different states have talked about their concern about genocide. They, in my view, once they reach that view, have a positive duty to do to do to do certain acts to prevent it. One of which would be to, to seek interim measures or temporary measures from the International Court of Justice. So that's the court that deals with interstate disputes, mm. all kinds, border disputes, whatever you like. And this. They, the, the International Court of Justice has jurisdiction on genocide and has actually taken measures at the request of third party states. A clear recent example is the Gambia, which took Myanmar to um, the International Court of Justice and obtained temporary measures to seek the end of certain acts against the Rohingya. Um, so there's a very recent example of a third party state not involved in the conflict, to do with the Rohingya, going to the International Court of Justice and seeking such a, if you like, an injunction or an interim order to try and bring that to an end. And in my view, that is what should be happening. That would be the obvious thing for third party states to do to try and stop what's going on. Thank you. Um, well, actually, that, that answered the, the question I had about third party states. So looking um, towards universal ju jurisdiction, Yes. and international law. Um, so theoretically, is it possible for alleged war criminals to be arrested in a country 
such individuals may travel to, such as this one. Because I mean, you, I think you know, before we came on air, you were talking about um, the previous Israeli foreign minister, Sipi Livni, I think. Yes. Um, and you, I think you obtained arrest warrants for her, and you've obtained arrest warrants for others. For others, what yes, were they correct. accused of, and and what what actually happened? Yes. So the 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 the, the easiest example to explain is the the earlier case of Doron Almog. So Doron Almog was the head of Southern Command, including Gaza, um, for a period um, straddling the beginning of the, the this century into the early 2000s. Um, we investigated a series of cases against him, including the one I mentioned, the one-ton bomb, um, and others, so, some of which he went on television. So this is, again, the Al Capone thing. If you, somebody goes on television and says, yes, I was the commander, I ordered the following, and he ordered the destruction as a punitive measure, very much like the punitive action that's been taken. An Israeli soldier was killed in an, in, in an incident in Rafa, and they demolished a whole section of the Rafa uh, area. Um, and there were other allegations against him. Um, so we heard that he was due to come and speak in, in Solihull. He'd been invited. We found that out. We'd been collecting evidence about him. It was just fortunate that he was coming here and there is a positive duty to answer your question under the geneva conventions you must and it's a treaty obligation seek out and prosecute those are the terms seek out and prosecute anyone suspected of grave breaches of the fourth geneva convention so right. there's a positive international law duty and we've done what we needed to do as it were to reflect that by passing the geneva conventions at 1957 so we invoked that we asked the British police to arrest him. When they said, it's all too fast moving, we can't do it. We then used what we could as a private prosecutor, but that's all you can do because the attorney general has to approve any charges. You can't um, do a private prosecution actually of these type of offences, but you can as a private individual, try to get someone arrested to protect the position so that the police and the DPP can do their job. We did that. We went to a judge and remember, judges would be very, very reluctant to grant this. So we had to produce really strong evidence of a prima facie case, not nabbing someone on the street mm. because you think you've got reasonable grounds to arrest someone, higher threshold. We produced strong evidence, including the video of him taking responsibility for a, an alleged war crime. And we got the arrest warrant. Unfortunately, although he traveled to the UK, for reasons I can go into, he was effectively tipped off at the last moment. He arrived at Heathrow Airport and he was uh, uh, quite wrongly someone from the Israeli embassy that had served under him and who was a military attache was allowed to cross airside, go onto the aircraft and tell him, don't don't leave. There's someone on on the other side waiting to arrest you. They've got an arrest warrant. So he was able to just use the same plane to go back. So that could with any suspect who comes here against this against whom there is evidence we have a duty a duty mm -hmm. to seek out and prosecute where the evidence permits and that is across the world where people have, where states have complied with their treaty duty and brought in the ability to to use that universal jurisdiction sadly not all states did but interestingly when certain states signed the rome statute and they hadn't yet done what they should have done and created universal jurisdiction some states use that opportunity and in effect have created very wide jurisdiction australia is an example anyone who visits australia they don't have to be a national or a resident of australia if they've committed any of the alleged crimes crimes against humanity genocide etc they could be prosecuted just as a visitor that can't happen here by the way because of this strange situation and I mentioned much earlier, a Hamas suspect arriving here can't be prosecuted under the Geneva Conventions Act. They could only be prosecuted if they were a British citizen or a resident, because that's the ICC gateway to our jurisdiction mm. under the International Criminal Court Act. We don't we haven't created universal jurisdiction in relation to the crimes in the International Criminal Court Act. We've created it only for citizens of our country and for those who are resident here. So a visiting Hamas suspect could not be prosecuted because the Geneva Conventions Act doesn't apply and those other acts don't apply. It's only if that Hamas suspect was 
suspected of torture, which is a separate offence under Section 134 of our Criminal Justice Act, which was used to try and arrest Pinochet. Go. Mm. Yes. That, that that does apply because we've created universal jurisdiction in relation to suspected torturers. So a suspected Hamas torturer or um, all the other suspects, which I've mentioned, which would be Israeli suspects, could be um, arrested and prosecuted. As I say, the Geneva Conventions Act would be the gateway there. Yes. And I, I, I actually, going back to General Pinochet, I seem to remember him being arrested and being holed up at some golf course in Surrey and then right. uh, he wasn't yes he wasn't he wasn't held for long and and there's some device was used to to spring health him around yeah the i mean there yeah. there the part of the problem there was the the act of criminal act of torture was brought in under the 1988 criminal justice act and so and it came into force in 1989 a lot of the allegations against him predated our jurisdiction mm -hmm. but sufficient post-dated so he did have a risk of being prosecuted but he was released on health grounds well, i suppose the question might be um you know it, prime minister netanyahu uh, if and when he loses office um and he decides to to visit london to go shopping uh, do you think he could be arrested yes whether he would be and whether we could get an arrest warrant if he wasn't and whether they would be charges um is all because we it's an attorney general decision to make charging decisions uh, under the act but yes he could and in my view he should um there is a problem created by um a concept called special mission immunity which is if netanyahu still had some official post and was being invited to meet diplomats or politicians in the uk he may be subject to a special form of immunity called special mission immunity. But absent special mission immunity, yes, once somebody, and this is complicated again, so our national courts do not have jurisdiction unless there's an arrest warrant from the ICC, in which case you'd extradite a serving uh, prime minister, head of state, foreign minister. There's a case at the ICJ where that national court tried to take jurisdiction over such a person, high high level member of government, they are subject to immunity whilst in post. So you you, you frame the question very correctly. Netanyahu, while he visits here, unless there's an ICC arrest warrant, could not be um, arrested or prosecuted. He's got a form of immunity. Once he leaves office, unless he's got special mission immunity, the answer is yes, he could be arrested and prosecuted. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, look, Daniel, we are sadly running out of time, but I just wanted to ask you one final question, uh, if that's all right, because we mentioned your work and in setting up back in 1988 the Palestinian Human Rights Organization, co-founders of Lawyers for Palestinian Human Rights. Um, and you, you know, you've been involved in, in, su in such a deep way over the over the years. I mean, do, do you think there's a kind of, um, you know, have you witnessed a kind of what you might call a dehumanization of Palestinians. Um, well, I mean, what have you, what have your, what is your main take in all that work uh, over the years? What have you witnessed? And how did the last two months compare actually? Is, is it, is this, uh, is this a step change for the worse? I suppose that's an obvious question, but. Well, I mean, the, 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 the level of alleged criminality, the level of civilian deaths is just unparalleled. In fact, even in recent history of other conflicts, it's unparalleled. What we've witnessed is, is an unleashing of such huge military might against the civilian population. It should never have been allowed to happen beyond the, well, shouldn't have been allowed to happen from day one. And as I said, the response of states at the time when Israel made these pronouncements should have been, hold on, you've got to deal with the 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 criminality you saw on the day in a particular way and you can't just do what you've done in the past and instead mm -hmm. we got the reverse so yes i think the these last few months have been horrendous um mm -hmm. and we had um clear but we didn't touch by the way on the crime of apartheid uh, which is which is one of the crimes against humanity it's a sub species of a crimes against humanity and israel was running a criminal operation of apartheid and is running a criminal operation of apartheid so that had been getting worse and worse and worse over the years and there was evidence of it for many palestinians have been arguing the crime of apartheid applied from you know 1970s 80s as 
the crime of apartheid became clearer and clearer through international criminal law. And certainly since the Rome Statute put it in as part of the Crimes Against Humanity back in 1998. So the intensification of Israeli apartheid is something that has preceded this. And it's not unrelated to the dehumanization question you asked me, because if you if you other, if you create otherness and, and non non-citizenness and non-humanness, these are all, I'm afraid, a continuum. If you create a system of, of deep-seated discrimination and otherness, hafrada in Hebrew, by the way, which is very similar to the Afrikaans concept of apartheid, separateness, it, it, it creates this otherness. And I think the, 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 the events of the 7th of October crystallized for many Israelis their already deep-seated um, response to Palestinian human rights and Palestinian collective rights um, and made them um, regard the Palestinians as less than human. And we have failed across the world to call that out sufficiently clearly because it's part of what um, needs to be addressed both as a matter yes. of law both as a matter of law for reasons which i hope are clear because of this allegation of genocide and apartheid um but also because to try to deal with politically what's going on in israel there needs to be a, a mirror held up to the israeli society and they need to be looking in that mirror much more clearly but no one's holding the mirror up that's the problem example the biblical injunction that netanyahu gave not long after the beginning uh, where he referred to a biblical passage which injuncts um jews to go and kill a whole group of people a genocidal statement in my view mm -hmm. that that wasn't made secretly he made a speech to the israeli public which the day mm -hmm. after people with access to social media or just a radio <laughs> could could see and hear yes. and yet the response to that have have you heard a single western leader say no here's the mirror this is what you've just said no. in any other context this is genocidal language you must retract your statement and you must not commit genocidal acts in response to the events of the 7th of October. Nobody seems to be saying it. Why? Daniel, one, as, I'm, as you're saying all of this, I'm beginning to think, you know, perhaps it's just that the edifice is just so weak and, and, and capable of crumbling, pulling out of one or two bricks. And that could possibly explain why uh, Western politicians get very perturbed when people talk about apartheid and Israel. Um, yes. And all of these things, because... If if you if you were if 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 President Biden or Secretary of State Blinken was to to, to challenge Netanyahu on that speech that he gave, that would pull the whole thing away. So yeah. it's well, it, it, people are making political choices, but they're not making coming back to my area of expertise, legal choices, because the legal um, significance of such statements is, is, is very high and indicates an intention to commit a very serious international crime. So there's something getting in the way of those legal principles mm. being followed up on, and that's got to be the political approach. But law, law and politics, of course, whether we're talking about national or international law is no surprise. Some people despair over mm the fact that international law and international criminal law, in fact, isn't enforced properly. But we have politics in law in all contexts. Look at what's going on with the attack, for example, on the Supreme Court of this country following the Rwanda ruling. So, you know, the fight between politics and law will always exist. But the fact that we've got some very clear um, legal markers that states should have been following up on indicates there's a political problem here and that's for another set of experts not me
Well, it is. And, you know, as you, as you say that, Daniel, I'm thinking of all the critics of the United Nations who, who, who lambast the organization per se, without ever really accepting that the UN can only be as strong as member states allow it. And that's political. It's, here, here we are. It's so much of I mean, it's been fascinating tonight, uh, today. So thank you so very much. I mean, it does it, so much has been explained in a way because uh, it does if it comes to ICC uh, ineffectiveness, if it comes to why isn't Israel being called out for apartheid, it does boil down, it would seem, very much to the political uh, imperatives yeah. and priorities. Uh, and that does, of course, play into another argument about how the rest of the world now sees the West, because one of the other issues we covered tonight was Ukraine and the total double standards between Ukraine and and Israel Palestine, and that's the global global South. I spoke to a diplomat, long-standing diplomat friend of mine from Trinidad. He said, "We in the global South won't forget this, and I don't think that they will." And the yes. thing is, Daniel, we're not going to forget this interview. So you know, we're, we're deeply grateful. It's been it's been very very helpful, and we hope that as many people as possible uh, watch this and share it. Uh, thank th you. There's so much to learn. So thank you very much. Indeed. And I have one last word, which is, and it's to echo something you just said. In effect, the Palestinian civil society, the lawyers I've worked with for many years, have held on to this, and Palestinians keep on asking. They have asked, as I mentioned earlier, they were the ones who referred themselves to the International Criminal Court. Palestinians want the law to be applied to them equally. They seek the equal application of the law. They've cried out for it. They deserve justice. So one of the things that political leaders should remind themselves of every day of the week is Palestine referred itself to the International Criminal Court. Palestinians have asked for the equal application of the law to them for decades. And you need to recognise why is it that the Palestinians are not af afraid of the legal system and in fact seek the protection of the law. Why is that? Mm. And, and to understand and unpack that and the fact that it's opposed serially by Israel, Israel doesn't want to see international justice because it fears that international justice means it has to look itself in the mirror. Thank you, Daniel.